0: And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnall. This is the Ken Hodnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is August the 30th. And it's the 242nd day of the year. 123 days remaining until the end of the year. And since you all wanted me to give you a listing of holidays and observances, now that one won't open up. It is National Holistic Pet Day. National Toasted Marshmallow Day. International Whale Shark Day. Frankenstein Day. National Grief Awareness Day. National Slinky Day. National Beach Day. And a Maguena Day. Um, every culture has at least one fried bread fish. For South Africa, that's the Maguena. So find a South African restaurant and go chow down. National Immunization Awareness Month. National Peach Month. Romance Awareness Month. National Fishing Month. National Inventors Month, National Water Quality Month, National Anti-Frizz Month, if you got that type of hair that frizzes up, National Catfish Month, and Happiness Happens Month. Alrighty, all that having been said, in the year 70, Titus ends the siege of Jerusalem after destroying Herod's temple of 82, Peter III of Aragon lands at Trapani to intervene in the War of the Sicilian Vespers. 1363, the five-week Battle of Lake Poyang begins in which the forces of two Chinese rebel leaders, Chen Yunyang and Zhu Zhang, meet to decide who will replace the Yan Dynasty. 1420, a 9.4 earthquake strikes Chile's. Atacama region, causing tsunamis in Chile as well as in Hawaii and Japan. 1464, Pope Paul II succeeds Pope Pius II as the 211th Pope. 1574, Guru Ram Das becomes the fourth Sheikh Guru Master. 1590, Tokugawa Iyasu enters Edo Castle. 1594, King James VI of Scotland holds a mosque at the baptism of Prince Henry at uh, Stirling Castle. 1720, the mosque is a, an event, a celebration, a, a, sometimes a play. 1791, excuse me, 1750, well, 1721, the Great Northern War between Sweden and Russia ends in the Treaty of Nystad. 1727, Anne, eldest daughter, King George II of Great Britain, is given the Titled Princess Royal. And for those that are not sure what all this royalty stuff means, it's a style customarily awarded by a British monarch to his or her eldest daughter. Now, although it's purely, purely honorary, it's the highest honor can be given to a female member of the royal family. And there have been seven Princess Royals. Um, princess Anne became Princess Royal in 1987. And the style Princess Royal came into existence when Queen Henrietta Maria, eldest daughter of Henry IV, King of France, and wife of King Charles I, wanted to imitate the way the eldest daughter of the King of France was styled Madame Royale. Thus, Princess Mary, who was born in 1631, the daughter of Henrietta Maria and Charles, became the first Princess Royal in 1642. 1757. Battle of Gross Jagersdorf, Russian forces under Field Marshal Stefan Friotovich Proxon uh, beats a uh, smaller Prussian force commanded by Field Marshal Hans von Redwalt during the Seven Years' War. 1791, HMS Pandora sinks after having run aground on the outer Great Barrier Reef the previous day. 1799, the entire Dutch fleet is captured by British forces under the command of Sir Ralph Abercrombie and Admiral Sir Charles Mitchell during the War of the Second Coalition. 1800, Gabriel Prosser postpones a planned slave rebellion in Richmond, Virginia, but is arrested before he can make it happen. 1813, First Battle of Combe. French forces are defeated by Austrian-Prussian-Russian alliance. 1813, Creek War. Fort Mims Massacre. Creek Red Sticks. Kill over five hundred settlers, including two hundred fifty armed militia in Fort Mims, which is north of Mobile, Alabama. 1835, Australia, Melbourne and Victoria is founded. 1836, city of Houston is founded by Augustus Chapman Allen and John Kirby Allen. 1862, American Civil War, Battle of Richmond. Confederates under Edmund Kirby Smith, routed Union forces under General William Bull Nelson. The uh, 1873, Austrian explorers Julius von Payer and Carl Wapak discovered the archipelago of Franz Josef Land in the Arctic Sea. 1896, Philippine Revolution. After a Spanish victory at the Battle of San Juan del Monte, eight provinces in the Philippines are declared under martial law by the Spanish Governor General, Ramon Blanco Arenas 1909, Burgess shale fossils are discovered by Charles Doolittle Walcott. 1914, World War I, Germans defeat the Russians in the Battle of Tannenberg. 1916, Ernest Shackleton completes the rescue of all his men stranded on Elephant Island in Antarctica. And wouldn't you know it, they didn't find a single elephant. 1917, Vietnamese prison guards led by Trinh Van Khan mutiny at the Thái Nguyên penitentiary against the local French authority. 1918, Fanny Kaplan shoots and seriously injures Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin, which along with the assassination of Bolshevik senior official Mosse Yuritsky days earlier prompts the decree for Red Terror. And for those that are not familiar with what that really meant, uh, it was a campaign of political repression and executions that was carried out by the Bolsheviks, chiefly through the Cheka, that's the uh, Bolshevik secret police. Officially started in September 1918 and lasted until 1922. It arose from the assassination attempts of Vladimir Lenin and Petrograd Cheka leader Moshe Yuretsky, retaliation for the Bolshevik atrocities. Uh, latter of which was successful. Red Terror was modeled on the reign of terror of the French Revolution, and it sought to eliminate political dissent, opposition, and any other possible threat to Bolshevik power. More broadly, the term was applied to Bolshevik political repression throughout the Civil War, as distinguished from the White Terror carried out by the White Army against their political enemies, including the Bolsheviks. Everybody's Got somebody they hate. 1922, Battle of Dern Lupinar, first battle of the Greco Turkish War and the Turkish War of Independence. 1936, the RMS Queen Mary wins the blue ribband by setting the fastest transatlantic crossing. 1940, the Second Vienna Award reassigns the territory of northern Transylvania from Romania to Hungary. 1941, Teghina Agreement, a treaty regarding admission administration issues of the uh, Transnistria, Transnistria Governorate, signed between Germany and Romania. 1942, World War II, the Battle of Alam El Haifa begins. 1945, the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong comes to an end. Also in 1945, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, General Doug Zimadartha, lands at Atsugi Air Force Base. And finally, in 1945, Allied Control Council governing Germany after World War II comes into being. 1959, South Vietnamese opposition figure Phan Quang Don is uh, elected to the National Assembly despite soldiers being busted in to vote for President Ngo the Dinh Diem's candidate. 1962, um, Japan conducts a test of the NAMC YS-11, its first aircraft since World War II, and its only successful commercial aircraft from before or after the war. 1963, the Moscow-Washington hotline between the leaders of U.S. and Soviet Union goes into operation. Originally, it was a payphone, but nobody had that much change. 1967, Thurgood Marshalls Confirmed as the first African American justice, the Supreme Court of the United States. 1974, a Belgrade Dortmund Express train derails at the uh, main train station in Zagreb, kills 153 passengers. 1974, a powerful bomb explodes at the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries headquarters in Rilanochi, Tokyo. Eight are killed, 378 are injured. Eight left-wing activists are arrested on May 19, 1975, by Japanese authorities. Also in 1974, the Third World Population Conference ends in Bucharest, Romania. At the end of the ceremony, the UN Romanian Demographic Center is inaugurated. 1981, President Mohammed Al-Rajai and Prime Minister Mohammed Javad Bahonar of Iran are assassinated in a bombing committee by the People's Mujahideen of Iran. 1983, Aeroflot Flight 5463 crashes into Dolan Mountain while approaching uh, Almaty International Airport, in present-day Kazakhstan kills all 90 people on board. 1984, STS-41D, the space shuttle Discovery, takes off on its maiden voyage. 1991, the dissolution of the Soviet Union took place on this date. Azerbaijan declares independence from the Soviet Union. 1992, the 11-day Ruby Ridge standoff ends, with Randy, and Randy Weaver surrendering to federal authorities. 1995, Bosnian War. NATO launches Operation Deliberate Force against Bosnian Serb forces. 1998, the Second Congo War. Armed Forces of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and there's Angolan and Zimbabwean allies recapture Matadi and the Inga Dams in the Western uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, from the R C D and the Rwandan troops. Two thousand two, Rico Linhas Air flight forty-eight twenty-three crashes on approach to Rio Bronco International Airport. Kills twenty-three of the thirty-one people on board. Uh two thousand eight a Conviasa Boeing 737 crashes into Iliniza volcano in Ecuador. Kills all three people on board. Twenty fourteen, Prime Minister of Lesotho. um Tom Thabane flees to South Africa as the Army allegedly stages a coup. 2019, a huge accident during a 2019 F-2 spa feature race causes a young driver, Antoine Hubert, to die after sustaining major injuries. And in 2021, the last remaining American troops leave Afghanistan, ends the U.S. involvement in the war. They didn't just leave, they ran, thanks to orders of our current Uh, Commander-in-Chief. All right, we've been talking about um, some of the, shall we say, uh, unexplained deaths in Hollywood. And we're going to talk a few more today. Uh, for some reason, we seem to select as our idols folks who have severe problems of their own, such as Vivian Lee. We're going to start out talking about Linda Darnell, who I thought was one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. Few people remember her today, but if you looked at her face, framed by that frame by that uh, improbably thick black hair. During World War II, it was enough to bring G.I.s to their knees. She was an actual queen goddess who came down off her pedestal to dance the night away with love-sick soldiers at the uh, famous celebrity-filled club for enlisted men called the Hollywood Canteen. Face of an angel, sensitive nature of a child. From childhood on, she was tormented by a recurring nightmare of being trapped in a blazing inferno, and she feared fire her entire life and that she could project such a graceful, alluring presence on screen while having such inner turmoil is very surprising. And in a world of candles and pilot lights and campfires, on the set and off of it, the the courage necessary to venture out from home, if nothing else, would be great. But unfortunately, she wasn't quite tough enough for Hollywood. Born Moneta Eloise Darnell in Dallas, Texas in 1923, her father was a postal clerk and her mother was um, a stay at home wife. She was the fourth child in a household already was home to three, and there'd be two more siblings after her. Her mother's own dreams of stardom had been buried under the hard facts of a rough life, so she sought to live it vicariously through her daughter. By the age of 11, she had Minetta modeling, so the winning local talent contest. Both while representing Manetta as being uh, several years older than she was. 1937, she won the Gateway to Hollywood contest. and with it, a contract at RKO Radio Pictures. Now, RKO did sign her, but felt uh, she was too young to use just yet, so they kept her on the bench, so to speak. And Pearl, her mother, got more impatient with each passing day. Well, in 1938, 20th Century Fox came to town and put out an open call for talent, and Pearl got Minetta a tryout. And the talent scouts loved her, wanted to get her signed, but they had to pry her out of her existing contract at RKO. So they sprang her out of that dead-end contract, signed her, and set her on a schedule of classes in preparation to get her ready for her first role. And her mother's pursuit of her daughter's fame was relentless, even when it got the at the expense of her other children. But it was about to pay off in a big way. Monetta had her name changed to Linda, and made her debut in the 1939 film Hotel for Women. At only fifteen years old, this role made her the youngest leading lady in Hollywood history up to that time, but nobody knew it. Studio had been told by her mother she was seventeen and turned everybody else to believe she was 19. Well, her real age was revealed a few years later, and in spite of her age, she was a vision. That flowing raven hair, dark, salty eyes, and a radiant innocence that seemed to permeate, even uh, transcend her sexual allure. Over the next decade, she went from co-star in such films as Stardust and A Daytime Wife to starring roles in big-budget technicolor projects like Forever Amber, Blood and Sand, and The Mark of Zorro. She was one of the highest-paid stars at the time. And her beauty was exceptional, rivaling even the most beautiful actresses uh, gracing the silver screen. Life called her the most physically perfect girl in Hollywood. Look Magazine voted to one of the most beautiful women in films, alongside Jean Tierney, Ingrid Bergman, and Hedy Lamarr. Under herself described this period as like being in a fairy tale. I stepped into a fabulous land where overnight I was a movie star. And she did live an enviable life, co-starred with legends such as Tyrone Power and Lillian Gish and Henry Fonda, and lived in a lavish mansion in Bel Air. She married a much older man, cameraman J. Perverell Marley, who taught her how to drink and be difficult. Unfortunately, her meteoric rise could only be surpassed by her even more rapid descent into obscurity. In just ten years, she found herself a living characterization of that saddest of Hollywood cliches that has been. Well, her decline began when her mentor, Daryl Zanuck, lost interest in her. He promoted others over her, leaving her inferior parts and but 1952, her contract with Fox expired and she couldn't find any good-paying roles. And she'd started drinking, while still on top, as a way of coping with the emptiness of her private life. As her career sank, her drinking increased, as did her weight. Well, she said later, suppose you were earning four or 5000 a week for years, and suddenly you're fired and nobody hired any figure or morally comparable to your previous salary. She was washed up at age 29. About 39, she had lost her mansion, a second marriage, and her father. And her once tireless mother wasted away in an expensive nursing home. So to pay the bill, she worked small stage productions and nightclubs and exhausted and probably ill with liver disease. She sank deeper into the bottle, as did so many other folks in Hollywood. April 1965 to two grueling months on the road with the theater group, she went to Glenview, Illinois to see her friend Jean Curtis and breathe. She was weak and frail, but still had her famous spunk. On the night of April 8th, Linda, uh, Jean and Jeannie's uh, teen daughter Patty, just watched one of Linda's earliest films, uh, Stardust, on TV. Linda was in great spirits, laughing and giggling throughout the movie, and even getting a bit nostalgic. Stardust, Ironica borrowed heavily from Linda's early experiences in Hollywood, showcasing her uh, when she was as yet untouched with ugly disillusionment that would later be etched into her face. After the movie, two full ashtrays were dumped into the kitchen sink, and all three women went upstairs to go to bed. Well, sometime before dawn, a fire broke out downstairs, trapping the women upstairs. Panicked, Jean shoved her daughter out one of the bedroom windows and squeezed out herself. Reached out her hand to help Linda out of the window, but... There was no hand to meet her hairs. She screamed for Linda but heard nothing, so she went back into the smoke-filled bedroom to try and find her. But the smoke and the heat beat her back before she was able to take a step, and she finally went out through the window and onto the roof. And in a comedy, a comedy of errors that would have made Buster Keaton proud and a Keystone audience roar with laughter if it wasn't so horrible, then ensued. The fire completely engulfed the home by the time the fire department arrived on the scene. Jean was hanging on to the windowsill and screaming there was still a lady inside. Firemen thought she said baby and when they entered the house they were crawling on their hands and knees looking for an infant. And it was general pandemonium on the streets as people rushed around in all directions trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, a neighbor saw a chilling scene right out of a movie. He'd gone over the help and saw the figure of a woman in a living room window standing right in the middle of the inferno, silhouetted against the flames. And as he smashed the window with a snow shovel, oxygen swept in and a fireball engulfed the figure. found Linda on the living room floor, barely conscious. She'd been too terrified to climb out the second story window and jump onto the roof, and instead she walked downstairs and right into the inferno, covered in just a few blankets, trying to make it to the front door, but became disoriented and collapsed in the living room rushed her to the hospital, cussing and screaming all the way. She had no intention of dying and even quoted as saying, Who says I'm going to die? I'm not going to die. But she was burned over 90% of her body and succumbed to her injuries next afternoon. She was just 41. Rumors sprang up that Lyndon, drunk in carelessness, dropped a lit cigarette in a chair causing the fire, but there was no proof of this, and the true cause of the fire was never determined. Melinda was a sweet, gentle girl who found out that the fairy tale life of being a movie star has a dark side. Slide just a little bit to the left of perfection and you're performing off-Broadway and wondering how it all went wrong. And don't forget that she did accomplish her mother's dream and face down her lifelong nightmare, nearly surviving. She was down but not broken all the way to the end. You know, so many of the big names that... uh, Grace of Silver Screen have come to sad ends. You know, one of the biggest names in Hollywood, D.W. Griffin, is on our list of uh, those who had a um, less than glamorous end. On, every, on any given night during the 40s, the only shot of a man could be seen hunched over the gleaming panel bar the glamorous Knickerbocker Hotel sipping his drink or bending the ear of a nearby stranger until indifference led to familiar isolation once again. This once great and powerful Hollywood player is living out his life in obscurity, alone and forgotten. Strangers he spoke with would not probably not believe they were talking to the person who held the title of a man who invented Hollywood. That was D.W. Griffin. They'd be stunned to learn that this man was one of the greatest pioneers and most influential directors in the history of film. Also carried the dubious title, the greatest racist in show business. And that was a stigma that would follow him to his early, early grave. Born in Kentucky on a plantation 10 years after the end of the Civil War, his family was impoverished by this time, having lost everything during the war and struggled to get a living on the farm. The death of his father, who was a former colonel in the Confederate Army, family moved off the farm and into the city of Louisville, where well, the situation went from bad to worse. Eventually, Griffin began acting as an actor in several small theater productions as a way to escape his desperate poverty, and this led to an early interest in show business, and he moved to New York to further his career. Well, before long, he landed small roles in that new medium known as movies, and he was soon writing them as well, and that talent led him to Biograph Film Company. They hired him to direct, of all things. Over the next few years, he directed more than 400 short films for the company, he'd become aware of a new way of telling stories in film, the feature. spent his early years at Biograph inventing or perfecting many of the techniques that later became intri- intrinsic parts of the language of film, just as intercutting scenes to raise tension, and he could see the potential of the longer format. But Biograph didn't share his vision, and made only one feature for him before taking his actors and crew to California to form a third of what would be later be known as the Triangle Film Corporation. His first project was a film version of a post-Civil War novel called The Klansman by Thomas Dixon. The novel had been made into a play that was very popular in the South, and as it fed belief that blacks were not only inferior but also dangerously clever and capable of great evil. Contradiction that didn't seem to trouble the droves that bought the book and saw the play. The audience was already primed for the story when Griffin set out to make a film that would change the industry forever. You may have heard of it. It was called Birth of a Nation. Promising to be a sweeping epic on an unseen scale, it boasted thousands of extras, elaborate special effects, hundreds of stunts, and buckets of drama. In short, something for everybody, as long as you weren't black. It was a Civil War with a sledgehammer skew favoring the Confederate point of view. Betraying freed slaves as wild animals out to steal the virtue of white women in the rightful place of the white race. The Klan were white knights, saving women and society from the ruin inflicted by that evil scourge sent by the Union Army on their gentle, beautiful white world. Well, nobody can dispute Birth of a Nation was a masterpiece of filmmaking, using such innovative techniques as color tinting and moving camera in a long panning shot one of the first films to use multiple interwoven plots and storylines. And it was over three hours long, three times as long as a one-way reel, and it was a stunning success. It smashed all box office records and held the position as the most profitable film of all time for 25 years. Only Gone with the Wind could steal its spot. D.W. Griffin had just directed the very first blockbuster. There was just one problem. It was a huge, gaudy, ball A shameless lie. The old South was shown in all this magnolia sinning, mimosas-soaked magnificence, with contented slaves enjoying their life of servitude, the gentle masters of patted them on the head and made sure they were well cared for. And these ungrateful wretches repaid this kindness by making their newfound freedom and marauding through the streets like dogs, leering at white women, staging corrupt elections in order to seize power for the sole purpose of getting drunk instead of inside the voting chamber and passing interracial marriage laws. So enter the boys in the white hoods, ready to save the day. The BS was piled so high in this movie it would take decades to clean up. The Ku Klux Klan was prior to the release of this movie, an organization that essentially died out after being declared a terrorist group in 1870. After the film was released, though, a renewed Klan was born again, fired up over both the movie and the public's positive fervor over the role the Klan played in it. They saw the birth of a nation as the most effective recruiting tool they'd ever had. Millions of new members swelled their ranks and bringing this once dead organization back to life with a vengeance to wreak havoc and horror and terror again for decades to come. Well, African Americans, of course, had a different view of the film, and riots broke out in Boston and Philadelphia when it premiered. NAACP tried to ban it in several cities, staging organized protests wherever it opened to no avail. White America is still firmly in charge, and White America loved the movie. Griffin, not one to rest on his laurels, launched right into his next big epic. Even more colossal scale than Birth of a Nation, it was titled Intolerance, and the concept was so complex and so ambitious that many in the industry doubted both Griffin's judgment and the project's commercial viability. Well, the doubters, of course, didn't trouble the great and powerful Griffin who to commit to film the most spectacular example of movie-making in the field's short history. Intolerance portrayed the historical oppression of the poor and downtrodden at the hands of brutal kings and modern capitalists through the eyes of four t- protagonists in four distinct time periods. These periods were ancient Babylon, 15th century France, ancient Judea during the time of Christ, and present-day America. Astonishingly, the stories were not told in chronological order, but in parallel, each building to a Dramatic complex, uh, climax alongside the rest and slowly building tension, leading to that crescendo of emotional resonance it's like four great films in one. Production cost, of course, went through the roof. Magnificent uh, ancient Babylonian scenes um, alone with its massive columns and 3,000 extras was the most elaborate and expensive scene yet filmed and it remained so for the next 20 years. The impact of ontologists was nearly as dramatic as the birth of a nation. The pacifist theme was popular in pre-World War I America, but quickly became dated as the country geared up for World war with Germany a year later. In addition to the huge production costs associated with the film, Griffin spent millions more on an elaborate roadshow that accompanied the movie wherever it premiered, sending the project even further into debt. The film began to hemorrhage money and eventually failed at the box office. Still, intolerance was considered by many to be the greatest sound that film ever made. 2007, the American Film Institute ranked it 49th of the 100 best movies of all time. David Kerr, a film critic for the Chicago Reader, wrote one of the great breakthroughs, Ulysses of the Cinnamon, a powerful moving experience in its own right. John Fortgang wrote in his review for Film 4, it's still the grim most spectacular undertaking in film ever seen. Well, in 1920, Griffin co-founded United Artists, along with Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairback, Jr., and continued to direct films. But by the mid-twenties, taste had changed, and Hollywood grew increasingly tired. of Griffin's outdated approach and his lavish, expensive productions wouldn't be long before he found himself shut out of the business he had almost single-handedly created. So the once great director retired to the elegant Knickerbocker Hotel and spent his days drinking and walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard, swinging his cane and reliving his glory days with anybody who'd stand still long enough to hear his stories. Much of the time, of course, he could be found hunched over the Knickerbocker bar, soaking his and booze until he staggered back to his hotel room all alone. He was considered a silly old drunk, ridiculous with his hat and cane, a gaudy relic from a past that nobody cared to remember anymore. On the afternoon of July 23rd, 1948, Griffin was walking into the great chandelier in the lobby of the Knickerbocker when he suddenly collapsed to the floor unconscious. He had suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage and was dead before he reached the hospital. He was 73. memorial service was held in his honor at the Hollywood Masonic Temple, but few in the industry bothered to come. But there were some left who remembered the genius he once was. Charlie Chaplin referred to Griffin as the teacher of us all. Orson Welles put it best when he said, I never really hated Hollywood except for the treatment of D.W. Griffin. No town, no industry, no profession, no art form owes so much to a single man. And he was laid to rest in a modest grave in his homestead of Kentucky, a long way from Hollywood, the town he helped to invent. Well, it's interesting to note that when you're up, everybody's your friend. When you're down, nobody wants to see you. Where are our next? Star. It was Charlie Chaplin. The image of the little tramp with his baggy pants and swinging cane, sauntering jauntily down a dirt road, is as endearing today as when Chaplin first committed that character to film nearly a hundred years ago. He overcame a soul-crushing childhood that would even stretch the imagination of a Dickens reader. And he'd become the most famous actor in history. You take his pain, and with it paint a masterpiece on celluloid, unparalleled in its influence on modern films. But you have to ask yourself how did America and Hollywood honor this genius? At the first hint of scandal, both Hollywood and the U.S. shut him out. He is forced to flee in fear and disgrace back to his native England, never to come back. 1889, he was born into poverty and in South London, the parents who eked out a living performing in the movie uh, music halls in favor uh, with the working classic folks then. His mother Hannah was promiscuous and gave birth to an illegitimate son, Sidney John, four years prior to Charlie. Charlie said many times he wasn't entirely sure the man presented to him his father, whose name he bore was his biological father. His parents split up when he was only two. Hannah tried to make ends meet by sewing and scrubbing floors with no help from her husband. Her career as a music hall singer faded along with her voice. One night, she was booed off stage by the crowd as five-year-old Charlie watched from the wings. Desperate, the theater manager shoved the little boy on stage and told him to sing. Terrified, he stammered out a song that delighted the crowd and he was pelted with pennies, which in those days was considered quite a return. The debut of Charlie Chaplin was a success at five years old. Well, life at home went from bad to worse for young Charlie. The crush of poverty, chronic malnutrition, and bouts of syphilis took their toll on his mother, and she eventually went insane. Charlie and Sydney were sent to the Central London District School for paupers when Charlie was seven. And that school was actually a brutal sweatshop for waifs where the two brothers toiled for two years. Well, Hannah took the boys back briefly, but gave them up again to another wretched workhouse. Meanwhile, Charlie Chaplin Sr. drank himself to death by cirrhosis of the liver in 1900 at age 38. Hannah, in and out of institutions for five years, went permanently insane in 1905 and stayed locked up for the rest of her life. Well, 13-year-old Charlie fended for himself until Sydney came back from the Navy. But well, through it all, Charlie never forgot the night he set foot on a smoky stage and conjured song for a rowdy, inebriated crowd that pelted him with pennies. He returned to the music halls and was cast in a London stage production of Sherlock Holmes. His professional acting career was launched. Later won national recognition for the comedy routine he performed with the Fred Carnot players. When a Carnot troupe played in New York in 1910, Charlie was a featured player. And it wasn't long before he was noticed by the New York Motion Picture Company, the producers of the popular Keystone slapstick comedies, and he was invited to audition. Well, he was soon working for Keystone, and the fledging industry had only just begun to change the world. Initially, he was put off by the gag-centric physical comedy comprising most of the Keystone shorts at the time. felt they lacked subtlety and innocence, and gaining laughs at the expense of beauty and deeper subtler uh, emotions his second film for keystone debuted the character forever shadow his life the little tramp he described years later how he designed the character's costume he said i wanted everything to be a contradiction the baggy pants the coat tight the hat small the shoes large went on to say he didn't understand the character until he put on the costume and he literally became the tramp well, the Tramp started out just another sight gag routine, common into one reel shorts at a time. But Charlie, of course, had bigger plans for him and found that he won directorial control over his work. He began borrowing situations from his childhood experiences to incorporate into his films. Tramp became a tragically pitiful, tragic figure, the ultimate outsider, an innocent whose life experiences are both funny and poignant. Sublime themes of alienation, poverty, and oppression wound their way through his work audience found themselves laughing one minute and dabbing tears the next. This type of comedy had never been done to the degree it was accomplished in the Little Tramp features. Pre-Depression, World War One, America was in love. Chaplin was a huge star and the Tramp, the most recognized character in the film industry. And in film history. During his late teens and early twenties, Charlie Chaplin could do no wrong, at least not on film. He crafted his greatest masterpiece during this period. Including the kid and the gold rush and a woman in Paris but his personal life was another thing entirely people were talking about his fondness for young girls In 1918 he married 16 year old Mildred Harris thinking she was pregnant she wasn't he was angry when he found out didn't love her and felt she stifled his creativity when a child was born in July of 1919 it was horribly deformed surviving only three days after 18 months of wedlock Charlie and Mildred separated she went after his fortune with a vengeance and charlie was inspired by the relationships in and the death of his child and poured those emotions into his first masterpiece the kid a heartbreaking story of a homeless tramp who struggles to care for a small abandoned child uh, i think he uh, his co-star was jackie coogan who had quite a career himself his next disastrous relationship was with the gold rush co-star Lita gray impregnated by the then 35 year old chaplain at the age of 16 she Seemed to be forcing him yet again into a loveless marriage to avoid scandal. Well, they kept his new son and new wife hidden for months as the birth was too, obvi- was too obviously soon after the marriage to not seem related. And once the press had done the math it was obvious to the public he'd been sleeping with an underage girl out of wedlock. That was a crime punishable. with serious jail time in California. So was it any wonder with such an inauspicious beginning? that the marriage was never more than a complete failure. He avoided Lita as much as possible, spending long hours at the studio. And giving birth to a second chaplain's son in 1927, she left him as filming the circus, taking the children with her. She filed a divorce complaint through lawyers that read like a dirty novel, accusing Chaplin of onerous sexual perversions and mental cruelty. And of course, as you might imagine, copies were leaked to the press, and the tabloids through a Chaplin screwing party that made Rudolph Murdart blush. Conservative groups across the country called for the boycott of all Chaplin films on moral grounds. So Chaplin handed Lita $600,000 to make her go away, the largest divorce settlement of its, ty- of its kind at the time. Ultimately, the tramp proved too popular to be snuffed out by even this controversy, and Chaplin's career continued without much negative effect. Well, by the time talkies rolled around, Chaplin was still clinging to the artistry and beauty of the medium he had fully commanded for 15 years, silent movies. Skeptical of sound, had an intuitive sense that giving the trap a voice would ruin the image he had so carefully crafted for over a decade. He'd go on to produce two of his greatest masterpieces in the next decade, silent anachronisms amid a cacophony of uh, talkies. First was City Lights in 1913 was told the heart-wrenching story of a down-and-out drifter who helped a blind girl regain her sight and fell in love in the process. The film won critical praise and was considered by some to be Chaplin's finest work. The final scene in City Lights in which the tramp realizes the girl can see his face for the first time has been called the greatest moment in film. Six years went by before he released another film. Well, He was distressed and aimless in the world of sound pictures. He knew his little tramp would never make the transition, and he didn't know how to proceed without him. Well, in 1932, he met 21-year-old actress Paulette Goddard and entered into the first positive relationship of his life. The Depression was raging, and Chaplin had always had a distrust of unbridled capitalism, and thus began to formulate the concept for his next film. And it was called Modern Times, and shockingly, Charlie chose to make it silent six years after silent films it virtually disappeared. Story of a hapless industrial worker, a mere cog in the wheel of a giant evil machine that destroyed humanity in the name of progress. It's going to be the last time the little tramp appeared before the cameras. Paulette co-starred as the gamine an innocent child woman who joins the tramp and is us against the world adventure. Movie got mixed reviews, but has since been recognized as the masterpiece that it is. Goddard and Chaplin divorced soon after modern times was released. Rumor had it that the couple was never legally married to begin with. Well, his next film proved to be his most controversial. It's called The Great Dictator, and it was a thinly disguised parody of Hitler and the Third Reich, which was raging atrocities uh, over Europe at the time, but was still at peace with the U.S. This was Chaplin's first real talking picture, and though the tramp didn't make an official appearance, he's clearly present in the character of the Jewish barber. And the film, as you might guess, was well-received and proved to be Chaplin's most commercially successful film. Persistent rumors circulated Hitler himself viewed a copy of the film before it was released, and his opinion was not recorded, but you can guess he was not exactly thrilled. Well, Chaplin's life entered a turbulent period due in part to his leftist politics as the ability to stay away from unstable young, and some would say too young women. One of these was twenty year old actress Joan Barry, with whom he had a brief affair before realizing she was crazy as a road lizard broke off the relationship, but Barry stalked him, breaking into his home and threatening suicide while ultimately aiming a gun to her own and in his head. Eventually took him to court, claiming he was the father of a legitimate daughter. Well, Chaplin was indicted on charges he violated the Mann Act for transporting Barry across state lines for sexual reasons. He could have gotten 23 years in prison. And scandal again rained down on Charlie Chaplin. He went into hiding. He was acquitted of the charges, and blood tests proved he was not the father of Barry's child, but the judge refused to admit the test as evidence. He was ordered to support the little girl anyway. Well, Barry lost custody of the daughter when she lost her mind completely and was found wandering around the streets carrying baby booties and mumbling they were magic. Demonstrating astonishing poor judgment yet again, Charlie married 18-year-old Una O'Neill only weeks after he was acquitted. He was fifty-four at the time, and the public once again rolled their eyes. This marriage turned out to be the most stable and positive of all, though. Una O'Neill was wise beyond her years and provided Charlie with a loving home and six children. Stood by him, during the most difficult period of his life, went into exile with him, along with their brood, giving up her home and family to go with him. uh, Chaplin's real problem started with Monsieur Verdot, an unabashed, openly left-wing political commentary about a serial killer. A wreck, mass murder of them on the, on the most innocent victims. The public was not amused. Chaplin was booed at the premiere and was not amused. Not an artist had to pull it and release it, but it still failed miserably. Public had grown tired of their little tramp once such an enduring figure as he turned into the ranting political chastiser. They didn't recognize, and he didn't help things by associating with communist organizations and cozying up to the Soviet Union at a time when. The, House Un-American Activities Committee was on a rampage, tearing through people's lives in their relentless pursuit of communist infiltrators. There were public protests and calls for him to be deported. He was called before the committee, but not asked to testify. He denied he was a communist, but he did not compromise his principles, which were always held that unbridled capitalism was evil. Well, you might be shocked, but Charlie would have been a proud member of the 99%. Well, he shook off his first failure and started working on Limelight. The film would be a family affair, including four of his children and his half-brother. Set in London, so Charlie decided to hold the premiere there. He, Una, and their six children set sail on the Queen Elizabeth for England September 8, 1952. Charlie wouldn't see the United States again for 20 years. While out at sea, Charlie's re-entry permit was revoked by the Attorney General of the United States. May clear in a telegram to the director that to re-enter the country, he'd have to submit his answers to several pointed questions regarding his political and moral views. Chaplin declined, choosing instead to live out his days in Switzerland with Uner and their kids. Well, his final two decades were spent tinkering with various film projects, including The King of New York, a scathing parody on the House of American Activities Committee. His last complete film was A County from Hong Kong, tender romantic love story released in a 1960s world full of rebellion and free love and was a commercial and critical failure. Gradually over the course of the the decade America woke up from its commie witch hunt hysteria with a bad hangover and a disquieting sense of regret and the film industry began to rediscover Charlie's older work and with it came a renewed sense of the, the tremendous genius they had chased off. Finally, in 1972, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences bestowed on Chaplin an honorary award for his incalculable effect of making motion pictures the art form of the century. He was invited to America to accept the award. And he hadn't set foot on American soil in 20 years in one of the most emotional scenes in the Academy Awards show 43 year history. The failed Charlie Chaplin shuffled slowly onto the stage at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion through a crescendo of. Um, thunderous applause and shouts of bravo star-studded crowd got to its feet and stayed there for a full five minutes the longest standing ovation in the show's history charlie was in tears as he gazed in awe at the tribute mumbled such sweet people jack lemon suddenly appeared handed him the hat and cane of the little tramp and the effect was complete took 20 years for hollywood and the country to come to its senses and honor the man that had first dared to take comedy to a deeper place and in doing so change our view of ourselves Chaplin once said, more than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness. Without those qualities, life would be violent and all would be lost. In the end, a world that has shown nothing but disdain for this gifted genius of, for 25 years, finally came around and showered him with love and recognition he so richly deserved. Charlie Chaplin died Christmas Day in 1977. His beloved Una decided he was 87, in a macabre turn of events, his coffin was stolen a year later and held for ransom. Swiss police eventually tracked it down and arrested the perpetrators who demanded 400,000 pounds for the safe return of the body. It sounded like something out of a Keystone cop, uh, comedy. Charlie Chaplin would probably have been amused. Well, you know, there's been quite a number. Of very strange stories coming out of Hollywood. The next one's about Dorothy Dandridge. Entertainment agent Earl Mills finally broke into the once-grand apartment after knocking for several minutes without response. As he stepped in, he called out for Angel Face, the young woman he'd come for, but there was only silence. When he reached the bathroom, when he reached the bathroom, he saw why. Lying on the bathroom floor, dressed in only a blue scarf, was the body of. Actress Dorothy Dandridge, she had been dead for hours and was showing signs of rigor mortis. Earl was overcome with sadness, and when the world found out, it joined him. She was born in nineteen twenty two in Cleveland, Ohio. Mother Ruby left her father while still pregnant with Dorothy, and soon another woman came into their lives, Geneva Williams as she she became the disciplinarian of the household brutalizing and intimidating, Dorothy and her sister, Vivian. The nature of lesbian relationship between her mother and Geneva Geneva wouldn't be clear to Dorothy until decades later. Ruby Dandridge was an aspiring actress herself and saw potential promoting her darling daughters as a singing-dancing duo known as the Wonder Children. And they joined the National Baptist Convention and toured for three years, performing at various churches throughout the South. Their act was part of a collection of similar acts and venues known as the Chitlin Circuit where black entertainers could safely perform in the heavily racially segregated South. Girls performed day in and day out, harassed by Geneva's uh, relentless tutoring to improve their performances. They rarely attended school or enjoyed normal childhood activities. Early in the Great Depression, Ruby moved the family to Hollywood, hoping to get the girls into films. Etta Jones was added to the duo, and the actors renamed the Dandridge Sisters. They toured the U.S., even performing at the famous Cotton Club in Harlem. The Cotton Club was the first successful nightclub to showcase only black entertainers who performed in front of an all-white audience. Soon she was playing uncredited bit parts in films such as Teacher's Bow and A Day at the Races, her first credited film role was in Four Shell Dine. 1941, she was paired with Harold Nichols of the... Nichol- I'm sorry, Nicholas of the famed Nicholas Brothers tap-dancing duo for the film Sun Valley Serenade, where they tap-danced together. That scene was cut from the film when it played in the South. She eventually fell in love with Nicholas, and they married in 1942. Of course, the marriage was a disaster from the start. Dorothy was desperate to get away from her controlling mother and her mother's cruel girlfriend Geneva, and marriage to Nicholas provided that opportunity. Unfortunately, Nicholas was fond of drinking and womanizing and staying away from home. She got pregnant in 43 and was home alone when she went into labor. And the birth was difficult. The baby girl named uh, Heroin uh, was deprived of oxygen and suffered from severe mental retardation as a result. Well, Dorothy was devastated but tried to care for the girl at home with little and no help from her husband. At one point she even sent her to live with Geneva and her mother as she uh, could no longer control her frequent outburst. Finally, in desperation, she placed Lynn in an expensive institution under the care of a private nurse. But this time, Dorothy had had enough of her absentee husband's philandering ways and filed for divorce. Well, distracted by her personal life, she neglected her career and found it extremely difficult to get into film work. The parts she did get were meager, small roles, not worthy of her beauty, experience, or talent. 1951, she met Earl Mills, a Hollywood agent, who realized the rare and talented gem that she was and set out to revive her career. He booked her at some of the most prestigious nightclubs in the country, including the Macambo and the famed Waldorf Astoria Empire Room. It was during the, uh, her tours of uh, Miami and Las Vegas that the Andrews encountered some of the most blatant racism to which she'd ever been subjected. How extreme was it that it could exceed anything she'd encountered on the Chitlin circuit? It was beyond extreme. While performing in Miami, she wasn't able to stay within the city limits due to her race. One of the venues, she was handed a plastic cup when she asked where the restroom was. While headlining a major casino in Las Vegas, she was treated like an infectious disease instead of the star. she was. Wasn't allowed to mingle with the guests, eat in the public dining room, or use any of the hotel's public facilities, including the front door. Despite it all, she and Earl decided to take a little dip in the pool in direct defiance of the rules. Even before she had a chance to slip into the water, the manager came running out created a huge scene, screaming and yelling. She was not allowed to do that. Humiliated and angry, Dorothy dipped her foot in the pool in righteous indignation. Later that evening, she walked past the area again, saw the pool had been drained and being scrubbed clean top to bottom by black employees. Well, the nightclub tour did the trick, though, and Dorothy was soon cast in MGM's Bright Road opposite up-and-coming actor Hella Barifanti. Her face began to appear on major national magazines, and her future looked bright was then cast in a role that would kind of to major stardom, the title role in Otto Preminger's Carmen Jones. The film was a modern take on the French opera Carmen. It was a direct perfect vehicle for uh, Dorothy. The role was challenging, containing numerous musical numbers and dance sequen- sequences. Despite being a professional singer, Dorothy's voice was dubbed, as were all her co-stars. The film, though, was a huge success, both critically and at the box office, since she was suddenly a hot commodity. She became only the third African American actress to be nominated for an Academy Award and the first to be nominated for Best Actress. Ice Cream Blonde from Philadelphia, Grace Kelly, took home the statue for her performance in the country girl, amongst the doctor's abject and bitter disappointment. Well, it was on the set of Carmen Jones she became romantically involved with the married director Honor Preminger. He gave her career advice, telling her to turn down roles that were beneath her new statue as a leading lady, and she complied. This began the slow descent of her career after only a brief period of upward momentum. She got a major success with the film Island in the Sun in 56 and critical acclaim for her performance in Porgy and Bess. Of course, Porgy and Bess was highly unpopular with blacks. They felt it perpetuated uh, negative racial stereotypes. Seems the white audience didn't much care for it either, and the film flopped. Well, Dorothy realized Preminger would never leave his life for her, Bitter and lonely, she married Jack Dennison, a white rust hunter who brutalized Beat and bankrupted her over the next few years, forced her to cut ties with her close friends, including her own male as the man who helped make her a star. Then she discovered she owed $130,000 in back taxes and also lost a great deal of money in an oil investment scam. Financially and professionally ruined, she was forced to give up her glamorous home and put her mentally challenged daughter in a state-funded institution. Racked with guilt, alone, despondent, rejected by Hollywood, she drank, took prescriptions, and in 63 she had to declare bankruptcy. In 64, some of her old spirit returned. She rekindled a friendship with her old Mills and went to a spa in Mexico to try and get healthy again. While touring with the nightclub act, she twisted her ankle and couldn't work. On the afternoon of September 8, 1965, Mills came to drive her to a cast uh, to have a cast put on her ankle and Discovered her lying nude on the bathroom floor. She'd been dead for hours. Corner's report co- listed the cause of death as a rare embolism occurred when fragments of bone marrow left her fractured ankle and lodged in her lungs and brain. Of course, the toxicology report painted a different story. It, it called it an accidental overdose of the antidepressant family was the cause of death. Whatever may have been the cause, beautiful Dorothy Danridge was dead at 42 when Mill searched the apartment he found a note that read in case of my death don't remove anything I have on scarf, gown or underwear create me right away if I have anything money, furniture get it to my mother Ruby Dandridge she'll know what to do right to the end it seems she was unable to completely break the record or the cord with her mother she said if I was white I'd rule the world and she was probably correct well on that note we come to the end of today's show we'll be back tomorrow and talk about a few more of the tragic Hollywood beautiful people who died uh, of strange deaths. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall show, saying have a truly great evening.